Hi, I'm Clay Wallace, and I'd like to invite you on a tour of my hometown. Welcome to Any Old Place, a podcast of the Capital City Museum, where we explore unique places in Frankfort, Kentucky, from the past and through the present. Today, I'm standing in a grassy field downtown. With my back to Clinton Street, I can see the transportation cabinet and Mayo Underwood building. To my left, earth movers clear an area behind the Capitol Plaza Hotel. I'm at the site of the former Fountain Place Shops, that's S-H-O-P-P-E-S, a retail complex built as part of the Capitol Plaza project, along with the Office Tower and the Frankfurt Civic Center. The shops were underneath the upper deck of the plaza, surrounding the large rectangular fountain which gave the space its name. The complex stood until March 2018, when the majority of it was destroyed in a controlled demolition. In this episode, and in the episode which follows, we'll be speaking to community members with a personal connection to Fountain Place to explore what it meant to shoppers and shopkeepers, and what's up next for the space it once filled. But first, a little context about Frankfurt and this project. Frankfurt's a town of under 30,000 people, making it 10 times smaller than Lexington's 300,000 and 20 times smaller than Louisville's 600,000. It's the capital of the Commonwealth of Kentucky, thanks in part to its central position on the Kentucky River and in part to its competitive pledging of manpower and materials toward the construction of a state house at the end of the 18th century. Frankfurt is distinctive geographically. Though it's in the rolling hills of the bluegrass region, it's the river which defines its character. Downtown Frankfurt sits within a valley, a bowl carved out by the Kentucky River. Immediately north of the river is a commercial downtown area. South is residential, though it also houses the Capitol building. Outside of the bowl, Frankfurt separates into an east side of town, along US 60 toward Versailles, and a west side of town, along 127 toward Lawrenceburg. I-64 touches both ends of the city and can get you to Lexington in 30 minutes and Louisville in an hour. My history in Frankfurt began the day I was brought home from the hospital. My parents had met at Farmer's Bank. My mother was a teller while my father was a computer room supervisor. For the first decade of my life, I lived on a hill overlooking the valley. I went to Capital Day School and then Good Shepherd School while it was still downtown. By high school, we'd moved into Western Hills' district, making me a Wolverine class of 2012. My family's history in Frankfurt starts earlier. My maternal grandparents, originally from Hopkinsville, moved here in the 1960s. Before that, in the late 18th and early 19th century, my settler ancestors had passed through Frankfurt on the way to Western Kentucky. Moses Lacey, the grandfather of my grandmother's grandfather's grandfather, was documented as having worked in Frankfurt as a bricklayer before he moved to Christian County in 1810. My father's side has long roots in central Kentucky's Mercer and Washington counties, only a short drive away. The purpose of this project is to act as a sort of love letter. Frankfurt has been, for nearly 30 years, a town which has nurtured and supported me. I love its schools, its churches, and its people, its hiking trails, parks, and museums. I love that it's a town that's hard to categorize, both itself and an amalgam of the whole state around it. It's the state capital, but you can be on forested hills or rural farmland only a mile or two away from the governor's mansion. It houses lifelong residents like me, but welcomes people from all over. 
My aim is to explore how, in a town constrained by its geography, a single spot is capable of carrying overlapping histories and stories. Every time a new place appears in Frankfurt, it finds and fills a need atop what was once home to something else. Sometimes these are happy stories, sometimes they're not. My angle, to the extent that I have one, is to explore those places and the niches they occupy in the community with curiosity and respect. This episode, we'll be listening to four people who recall the original vision of Fountain Place Shops, a modern outdoor mall filled with unique retail stores. I'm easing into this project by introducing someone I know very well, my grandmother, Donna Baldwin-Hunt, who owned a shop in Fountain Place called Miney's Things, where she sold craft supplies. Her first husband, my grandfather, John Calvin Baldwin, was an architect who had been involved in the construction of the Fountain Place shops. My grandmother's shop was one of the first to open in 1973, the year after the Capitol Plaza project was completed. There were, I think, two other places that it opened, and they were newly opened. I got there before they had the ribbon cutting and the, the contest to name the place, which was obvious it had a fountain, but it, everybody, and it was a fun little contest, and everybody, lots of people in town entered, and they came up with all kinds of names. But the Gray Squirrel was, I think probably the Gray Squirrel was the first place to open. The Gray Squirrel was a card and gift shop, and nearly everyone I spoke to recalled it. I asked her which other shops she remembered. Kitty Hawk Records was there. Um, Morrison's Cafeteria was there. They were all memorable there. It was a shoe store there for a while, and they had great, really, really, really nice shoes. And then uh, the shoe store closed, and Stevenson's Books moved in that space. Uh, my best friend, Barbara Bishop, was the manager there for a while. And then Liz Taylor, who has Poor Richard's books now, uh, originally worked. Uh, I think she maybe, after Barbara moved on to another job, I think Liz Taylor perhaps was the, the next manager of the bookstore there. And then she eventually opened Poor Richard's books. Uh, but. It was a neat bookstore. There were a lot of neat places there. Uh, after the shoe store closed, one of the uh, co-owners of the shoe store opened uh, a men's clothing store. Um, his name was William Morton Moe. Everybody called him Moe. But he was an impeccable dresser. I mean, you, you don't see him out without a hat and tie. We'll be speaking to both Liz Taylor and William Morton later on in this episode. Everybody there was really nice. There was old Ruby Birch, had an antique shop. She was sort of like, Ruby was a delight. She was sort of like the queen of Fountain Place. Uh, and she was fearless. She was my hero. She was afraid of nothing. My grandmother pulled out a map she'd drawn for me on lined paper, showing a bird's eye view of the shops. In the center was the fountain, surrounded by labeled storefronts. Some were named like Thornberry Toys, Buckboard Leather, and The Cheesery, while others were listed by their offerings. A travel agency, a camera shop, and a toy store. A barber shop, hair salon, and wig shop all shared one corner. The map also showed the passage of time with overlapping businesses. One spot held an appliance store, then a computer shop. Early on, there was an appliance store there. But I remember when they got 
a microwave and they had a, a microwave demonstration cooking hot dogs and everybody went in to get their microwave hot dog. <laughs> it was fun. I asked her to talk about her shop, Miney's Things. It was an arts and crafts shop and I sold uh, plants and flowers and a little bit of everything. People that didn't even, weren't interested in buying would just come in. I had a big table, a work table, uh, where we had the classes and people would just come in and sit down and we'd chit chat. And it was sort of like a country store with a Cracker Barrel, except I had a great big messy work table and we'd just sit down and chit chat or they'd spend time. Um, the things that I sold there, there were wooden products that you could, uh, paint or decoupage or paint supplies, art supplies, uh, all kinds of bead, if you were in beading. In the front of the store, when you came in, were the plants, um, big tall ones um, to tiny little terrarium plants, um, all, all kinds of glues and paints and potions and there were a lot of old standard arts and crafts supplies and then whatever would come along that was new. My favorite thing to do was to go on shopping trips to see what was new and come back with new stuff. And the, the part I love of watching customers come into shop was when I would go in to Chicago or somewhere to shop and people would know I was gone, so they would wait for the stock to come in, and as soon as the boxes came in, they'd want to come in and have me rip them open so they could go through the boxes. They loved to go through the boxes to see what was in there, and it was fun. I was familiar with the shop's name because she had kept the sign as a wall decoration in her living room, right above where I would practice piano as a kid. I still have that because I loved it. There's a little sunshine face that used to be the dot over the eye, and I didn't get that put up, but I still have the mighty things. Because I loved being there and I loved the shop, and so that was a little piece that I just kept to remind me of it. The name Miney's Things didn't start with my grandmother. Before she owned it, Miney's Things was a shop on Louisville Road belonging to a woman named Mary Milam Harrod Dunn. And when she got ready to close, she called me and, and said she was closing and um, offered it for sale, and I said, sure. But it, she named it, and as I recall, she said the story behind it was her dad, she had several sisters and, I, and maybe a brother or several brothers. I don't remember the family dynamics, but her dad would, she said, would confuse the name. So to make it easy, he just called them each one Eeny, Meeny, Miney, and Mo, and she was Miney. My grandmother recalls Fountain Place fondly, calling it one of a kind. It was very peaceful. The sound of the water was wonderful. Inside the shops, you couldn't hear it very much, but as soon as you open the door, you get the sound of the water, and it was so peaceful. And the great thing about the building was that all that concrete, in the summertime, it, it was slow to heat up, so you had warm weather longer into the winter. So when it was freezing cold every place else, it was still fairly warm there. And then in the summer, you still had the coolness from the winter, with in the, it was like thermal 
warming and cooling. Uh, they had some great activities there. I remember we used to have, uh, we had a couple of kite flying contests for kids and it was so much fun. The kids on the upper deck, just kites in the sky flying. Uh, it was, it was, it was such fun. And there was one event I remember, it might have come more than one year, but sort of an outdoor exposition for people that had businesses dealing with the outdoors. And there was one man there who had um, sold rods and reels and he had kids that were casting fishing rods in the fountain. And, and that was fun to watch and think, fun things like that. Despite the friendly environment and regular customers, she recalls that many Frankfurt residents never ventured into Fountain Place, save for a yearly trip to the Capital Expo Festival. She attributes this to a couple different factors. Because the shops were entirely enclosed within the plaza complex, the only way in was to first park in the garage beneath, and then take the stairs up to get to the lower deck. There were a few, there was another place in town that had a similar idea that you had to park and get out of your car and walk to go in and shop. And that was in uh, the Brighton Park where you had to go inside to go to the movie theater. And there was a great dress shop there and some great shops inside, but you couldn't just pull up to the door and run in like Walmart or all the places, strip mall kinds of things. And I don't know, if people just had gotten used to the convenience, but they just wouldn't park and get out of the car and walk. And now I sort of laugh when people say, well, let's make walking trails and let's make biking trails. Then you couldn't make people get out of their car to walk a few steps to go and shop. She also shared an anecdote I heard multiple times from other owners of retail shops who I interviewed. There was a an ex former extension agent here that used to say, if people want to make a purchase over $5, they go to Lexington and Louisville. So you can't have nice things here because people won't pay for it. They make an excursion of it and go out of town to buy it, um, unless it's an absolute necessity that you need right now or it's really cheap. This phenomenon isn't unique to Frankfurt. Small towns within a short drive of larger cities often fall victim to consumer preferences siphoning away local dollars, a topic discussed by the late Patrick Carr in his book Hollowing Out the Middle. Though Carr's work explores multiple solutions that emphasize investment and civic engagement, there's no universal answer. It, it was a, a great idea. It was a lovely, beautiful place. I think the people that shopped there did enjoy it, but they're just, it just, uh, unless we had a big festival or something, it wasn't populated with a lot of people. The birth of the Fountain Place shops and the Capitol Plaza complex as a whole were themselves a top-down attempt to revitalize Frankfurt's downtown area. Part of the urban renewal movement, the plaza was constructed over top an integrated working-class community within Frankfurt called Crawfish Bottom, named for its tendency to flood and remain waterlogged. Residents who lived in the neighborhood were forced to leave, with property owners receiving insufficient compensation and the neighborhood's many renters receiving nothing at all. We'll speak more of Crawfish Bottom, also called the Craw or the Bottom, in a future standalone episode. One of my grandmother's customers had been a resident of the Craw and would tell her stories of the neighborhood. He would come in and visit the plants 
because he remembered an elderly woman who lived there who kept a sweet potato vine growing in her front window and it grew and grew and grew and grew and whenever he walked by the shop he thought of her and he came in to visit the plants and uh, he would tell me stories about people that lived there and about where they were located in the area but um, my memory of that area starts with Fountain Place because I loved it. A friend of my grandmother's and an aide here at the Capitol City Museum, Patty Peevler, can remember a time before that. I lived at 515 St. Clair for six or seven years, of course, and, and so it was just right there. I, I lived there when they built the, um, the Capitol Plaza, so, you know, I felt watched it go up, but I had such hopes that it would be a nice, you know, place to shop and everything, and it fizzled out, as many things do. Patty is a lifelong resident of Frankfurt. She says she loved the Capitol Plaza, and like my grandmother, she recalled it fondly. They always had beautiful, big flower boxes around the, the fountain. And I guess they got a lot of water from the, from the fountain kind of you know, blowing on them maybe, but um, it, was, it was very beautiful. And of course it was modern. You know, there was a barber shop, there was a, 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 a beauty shop. Um, there might have been an appliance store it, it, but it, but they had everything, and it was just it was all new and different. And um, one time, and I I cannot remember for how long, the library was there. Um, after they moved from the women's club building, where they had been forever, and before um, the old post office was ready for them. They, they were there and they took up maybe three or four uh, places on the end, uh, on the Clinton Street end. And um, one in particular that I wanted to talk about was uh, Miney's Things, which um, your grandmother had. It had been started by a woman, Mary Milam Herod. And, and, and oh, would I wish for it again because it was um, every little thing that you could make uh, crafty was um, and tables for uh, crafts that you know a, a class that you could take and all of that and uh, I <laughs> I bought a lot of, of um, acrylic paints down there. They sold the little acrylic paints. And, and, and of course, uh, I knew Donna, and um, one time she was going to be off for a couple days. I, I think she might have been sick. And she asked me to mind the store. I was thrilled because, you know, I'd be just in there all day long. And so I did that for a couple of days, and that was fun. 
Patty says much of the foot traffic in Fountain Place consisted of guests from the connecting Capitol Plaza Hotel, state office workers on their lunch break, or locals enjoying events like Expo, an annual festival which we'll devote a full episode to in the future. In its early years, Expo was a juried art exhibition. And all of the craftspeople were um, in front of, of, the, uh, of the stores. And I don't know whether they appreciated it or not, but I think it probably drew a lot of people you know, in the stores, whether or not they bought or whether they were just in there because it was air conditioned, you know, I don't really know. But, uh, but anyway, and then of course you could go in uh, to the Capitol Plaza Hotel from, uh, from there and the uh, dining room had big windows that, you know, you could see the, the, the fountains from. Um, I, I always think of that with sadness because um, though I'm a Frankfurt native and I love it dearly and I never want to live anyplace else, um, when I think back over my long life and think about the things that came and went, there was a shoe store there. You know, now it, they, they were they were run by um, a guy that I you know that I knew, and you know now you you don't go to places where you well, or very seldom go to places where you know the person running it and you care about them and you want them to succeed. You know, it's probably an indication of the health of some place, how much turnover they have, and then it started, the shops were going out and it was more offices and that kind of thing, and so I think the cheesery hung on pretty long. The cheesery was a deli, and it was one of the first shops in and the last shops out. Though my memory of Fountain Place is only of its last decade or so, once it was mostly offices, I can remember sitting by the fountain in front of the cheesery, still open. I, w I wish I could emote how happy those fountains made me when I walked around them. You know, when the wind blew a little bit, it might, might get on you a little bit, but they were so tall and they made such a wonderful noise. That was a long time ago, and I, I, <laughs> I can really remember how, how it sounded and how it looked. I hadn't thought about it in a long time. Part of the Capitol Plaza adjoining Fountain Place shops was the convention center, the city's event venue. High school graduations, including my own, were held there, along with the Kentucky Book Festival, the circus, and presidential campaign appearances. I got to see Jimmy Carter before he was president. He came to a thing that the Democratic Party had. For several years, the Democratic Party would bring, um, I think they had the Bellamy Brothers one year, and they had they had people you'd heard of, and they would have a concert, and then I, I'm, you know, the people who were running for things would tell you how great they were and all of that. But I, I can remember I was really thrilled to, to see Jimmy Carter and Rosalind the Ringling Brothers Circus came one year 
and I lived across the street in an apartment building on St. Clair. And we went to the circus one time, but every night we would put lawn chairs in the driveway and watch them bring the animals in. And that was as much fun as anything. And living down there, um, the, to me, the, the convention center had, um, there were a lot of things there. Uh, there um, I saw Jethro Tull there. Patty's feelings about Fountain Place shops and the Capitol Plaza project as a whole are complex. In retrospect, it was wrong. Urban renewal was wrong. Um, okay, um, the craw wasn't the most uh, delightful place on earth for an outsider to look at, but it was the people who lived there, it was their community, they had a community, they liked living there, uh, you know, it had a lot to do with, um, uh, you know, the way it was started and, and, and why it was there, but to clean people's houses out and tear them down, you know, I have al I've always thought was wrong. But then I was elated because, you know, the Capitol Plaza was coming in. We have this beautiful office building and all these nice things, new YMCA and all of that. But then in thinking back, um, 50 years ago, it went up and it's already down. You know, I'm a great lover of old things and I, I don't know you just don't you just don't put up something and 50 years later you just go oh, this is all wrong and you know and tear it down. Fortunately some things do last. One modern fixture of Frankfurt is poor Richard's books owned by Liz Taylor. I interviewed her in her office at the shop's current location on West Broadway across from the old Capitol. But 40 years ago, she too was in Fountain Place. It's, it's funny about Fountain Place. There were um, a lot of shops and a bank all supporting the state office workers campus area. But it was all enclosed in a, in a plaza. So it was invisible to the public as you were driving by and to actually get in, you had to go under an, into an underpass, oh yeah, under an overpass, and then climb up stairs, two sets, two sets of stairs, which was about a dozen steps. So it was awkward, um, an awkward setting. Now the store already existed. It had started as Stevenson's bookstore, and I worked there in 1975 when I first moved to Frankfurt and then Stevenson sold it to another person and then I bought it in 78 but I knew from the time I was in there that I didn't feel like I was part of the community I felt like I was part of this little shopping area for the state workers but that 
I was isolated from the community. So it was, it, I, I kept looking for a place downtown. <laughs> for Liz, Fountain Place shops were an oddity. She feels the complex didn't really cater to Frankfurt residents, who found the shopping centers at Brighton Park and Franklin Square more easily accessible. There's, a, there's the east side shoppers and there's the west side shoppers. Um, and, but the main workforce in Frankfurt was government and that was downtown. Um, so as, so there, were, there was access to a large group of people, but it wasn't really the entire community. Um, it's, it, that kind of design just doesn't work as a shopping center um, for the community. It, that the access, the, in, the visibility that wasn't there. At one point, um, there was a balcony behind my store, which is where the hotel is now. So there was a, a walking platform with a balcony. And I actually hung a sign over the balcony that just said books, because I just wanted people to driving by to know that there was something going on in this concrete mass. On one side of the bookshop was the dental office of Dr. Jean Birch, who we'll speak with in the next episode. And then Buckboard Leather Shop was on the other side, which uh, Dan Armstrong ran. I remember the gray squirrel, um, which was before Lena's card shop. The gray squirrel has, was a gift and Hallmark card. Um, there was also the cheesery with Wilma Baker. Um, before Jean Birch came in, there was a little gift shop next to me that was run by a couple, and their last name was Bowers, but I can't remember the name of the shop. Um, there was a guy, Ernie, who was the barber in there, and the bank people, the farmer's bank was, was in there. Liz says it was easy to pass by the Capitol Plaza without realizing it held retail stores or businesses. Shoppers had to drive through a tunnel to access Fountain Place. And all you could see from the road was a kind of a one-story building with a concrete balcony. And it was the backside of the shop. The, so um, customers didn't go in that way. Uh, merchants could use the back door and run to the restroom down the down the way, but so the, so there were no people walking back and forth to make it even interesting from the road. It was just a, a blank concrete canvas. <laughs> Liz moved Poor Richards to West Broadway Street in 1981, leaving behind a 700 square foot retail area for a two-story shop, nearly four times larger. In Fountain Place, it was uh, much smaller, uh, and it had clear glass shelving. It was all kind of contemporary for 1975 <laughs> when it was put in there. Um, that wasn't what I, I mean, I love modern and mid-century modern, but I wanted the book feel to be old and traditional. So I went with warmer tones in here, so it's not stark white, it's, it's, a, it's a beige, warmer beige, and, and I have the red contrast. Um, and my, my plan was to just have the books be the color in the shop. And, and then Mayor Shoe store, which was up on Main Street, 
they went out of business and I was able to get their shelving and the ladders on the, um, the rolling ladders. So, um, so that really was the icing on top of the cake, that, uh, the plan that I had for the store. Liz, Patty, and my grandmother all noted the limitations of Fountain Place. Its location and enclosed architecture made it difficult for many of the shops there to thrive. One shop owner, however, made it work in his favor. William Morton's shop, The Male Ego, was a store specializing in distinctive men's clothing. The first impression uh, you hear is the last impression. In communicating, 55% body language, 38% voice, and 7% is words. So what people see first is what they're most impressed with. They were impressed with uh, how we uh, presented ourselves, which was very professional, and they were, pro they were really, really impressed with uh, the decorum of the shop. We were very well organized, uh, very impressive. You thought you was walking in a shop in New York. Uh, we'd done tuxedo rentals, tuxedo sales, uh, screen printing and embroidery. Uh, we taught the psychology of colors and hygiene and, and etiquette for men we were invited to CEO corporations and um, we imparted to them uh, the correct way of dressing and we mainly specialized in helping attorneys uh, to know how to dress first, second, and third day in the courtroom. Uh, we matched up uh, colors with uh, the function hair, pigmentation, eyes, and statue. We were one of the pilgrims in Fountain Place. Um, one of the original shops, it ended up with 22 shops down there. I was the president of the Merchant Association and um, done a good job. Uh, our premise was as a group to draw people because it was an offshoot downtown. That location provided Mr. Morton with a unique environment. Both in the 1970s and today, women have driven the majority of consumer spending. But Mr. Morton found that Fountain Place's architecture resulted in heavier traffic from men. It really worked against um, the psychology of women, and I use that respectfully because 75% of the retail sales in the United States is made to or because of women. But the shop, the way that it was geographically located and configured, uh, that area didn't cater to women. Mr. Morton speculates that underground parking, tunnels, and dark spots in the plaza made the site less appealing to women. And so therefore, we didn't draw the masses, but when people did find out what we specialized in, they were glad to come to support us. Only about half of the shoppers visiting the male ego were from Frankfurt. But we had experiences a lot with people from out of town introducing people that lived in town to our shop. And uh, it seems like it's backwards, but it happened. And uh, they were glad. Uh, it seems like if people out of town was impressed with what we were doing, then it was easy to impress people in town.
Mr. Morton echoed the same observation of my grandmother and the extension agent. Uh, typically, people in town, and this is um, traditionally, went out of town to buy. They complimented the community of Frankfurt for being a good place to raise their kids, but they went out of town to make their purchases. So it was always a challenge reaching people in town and making them loyal to what you were doing. Uh, it seems like the simple um, purchases uh, you were able to sell, but when it got to major purchases like higher items, it then became a challenge to convince people to purchase from you, even though they would go out of town to purchase the same manufacturers that you had in your store. The male ego was open for nearly eight years, from 1973 to 1980. Mr. Morton recalls the shop's origins. Uh, we, we worked in Versailles uh, on Tyrone Pike at Sylvania Electric. I was in the management department there. And we saw a need uh, after doing a survey, and this is interesting, uh, we surveyed 11 shops backwards and found out uh, that no one shop had the right location and the right merchandise. And that's really interesting. If they had the right merchandise, they had the wrong location. If they had the right location, they had the wrong merchandise. And so uh, we felt like if we could come in and provide people with both, we would be successful. I asked Mr. Morton if he felt that the absence of his shop and the others at Fountain Place had left a niche to be filled in the community. You can read the fact that when the United States went through the Depression, the uh, box store and stores and Confederate stores closed up and the mom and pop shops stayed open because they could serve the people in a way that the other shops couldn't. And I believe right now that when you extract a um, specialty shop from a community, there's something going to be missing. Uh, we, uh, we didn't refer to ourselves as just a clothing store. We were clothiers. So we, we just didn't take orders, but we fulfilled needs. And we listened to our customers tell us what they needed. We tried to provide that service. And uh, we were very effective. Uh, you know, they say uh, uh, one this runner customer will tell 60 people and one satisfied customer will tell 10 people. We didn't get any pushback. We didn't get anybody, you know, dogging us out about a service. Uh, but we had a lot of satisfied customers. And, you know, uh, you can always tell because when you come out of the store and you see people, they'll really tell you how, how they feel. And they would always come up and talk about how glad they was to have us in the community. Uh, those are the fond memories that I have because it's something about a happy customer. It's something about that. It goes, it resonates with you, it encourages you, and it causes you to want to keep on doing whatever it was you were doing.
The male ego, poor Richards, Stevenson's, and Miney's things all were part of Fountain Place Shop's early retail environment. In fact, originally, only retail establishments were allowed in the plaza. As time went on, however, that changed. Tune in for our next episode two weeks from now, where we explore Fountain Place beyond retail, as well as what's next for the location. I offer my thanks to my guests, Donna Baldwin-Hunt, Patty Peevler, Liz Taylor, and William Morton. Thank you to the Capital City Museum for providing constant support, to the City of Frankfurt for making this production possible, and to you, listener, for sharing your time with me. Any Old Place acknowledges the long history of life in the land we now know as Frankfort, Kentucky, which has been home to Cherokee, Osage, Yuchi, and Shawnee peoples. Any Old Place is a production of the Capital City Museum in Frankfort, Kentucky. To learn more about the Capital City Museum, visit capitalcitymuseum.com or come visit us in person Monday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. This program has been recorded, edited, and produced by me, Clay Wallace. I offer it to you, listener, with the belief that story grounds you in both space and time, and with the hope that it inspires you to befriend the world around you. You can find something worth tending in any old place. <laughs>